0: and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We hope the weather is nicer where you are than it is for us. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley.
1: I'm Waysper Chen.
0: And this was a Damn Interesting Week.
2: So let's get started with our first link.
0: First First link.
2: Link. Okay. In defense of the weather, which Jennifer has dragged through, I guess, the proverbial mud, (laughs) it is cold and rainy and it is glorious, y'all. But in more related news, you know, Halloween just passed. It is the shadow season. You can take that as symbolically as you like. But (laughs) JSTOR Daily has an excellent article called Why the Below Ground Ecosystem Matters. When we talk about biodiversity, especially with flora, we tend to really focus on trees and things that are shooting out of the ground, Mm -hmm. but we got to look lower, right? So below the forest ecosystem, you can find soil, roots, fungi, and microorganisms, and they are critical for biodiversity. According to researcher Whitney Storr, the fine root systems of trees are responsible for 75% of forest biomass production. Wow. Wow. And it's this organic matter that is essential to soil health, and it acts as a food source for a ton of different species. 50% of animal biodiversity is found below ground. We often forget about these ecosystems, but they tend to be more diverse than above ground. And these species are responsible for ecosystems that plants, animals, and humans rely on, including water purification, soil health, and decomposition. (laughs) (laughs) Nutrient cycling includes the nitrogen cycle and the carbon cycle, and this pretty much happens underground. The processes influence water health, plant growth, and the sequestration of greenhouse gases. So way beyond forests the below ground health has more influence on food production than what happens above ground. So we've had a lot of recent studies looking to examine how the above ground and below ground ecosystems interact. Store gives the example of forest conversion. So when you're converting forest to agriculture, that can decrease plant diversity and it can therefore impact the nutrient cycling which then affects the food web and biomass inputs into the ecosystem. So there are a couple of different avenues to bring greater awareness to the below ground, because this is really just a cheerleader rah-rah, embrace the shadow ground. (laughs) Mm -hmm. First, we need a lot more research funding that can expand our current knowledge of these ecosystems and why they matter. This could lead to policies that protect the entire forest ecosystem, not just the trees. You know, effective decision making at the scientific policy and global level could increase current focus on below ground systems and positively advance scientific research. Sure. yeah. <laughs> I was just thinking about how if the underground
0: world and decomposition counts as a carbon sink, that means zombies count as a carbon sink. <gasps> like we shouldn't be killing them. We should be, you know, <laughs> making sure we have enough of them to <laughs>
2: keep our planet cool. Wow, way to other zombies.
0: That was harsh, dude. Are you, well, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. They're <laughs> us. Zombies are all of us.
2: <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link.
1: This article comes to us from NationalGeographic.com. It's titled, This Fierce Fish Grows 20 New Teeth Each Day. Uh... The Pacific Lingcod is an ill-tempered, omnivorous fish with a mouth like a messy silverware drawer. It's 500... <laughs> it's 500 plus teeth arranged haphazardly on two sets of highly mobile jaws. New research published this month in the scientific journal Proceedings of the Royal Society B reveals that the Pacific Lingcod gains and loses an average of 20 teeth every day. If humans had the same dental scheme, we'd replace a tooth daily. Adam Summers, professor of biology at the University of Washington and co-author of the study, says, kind of makes braces useless and brushing. (laughs) (laughs) So the Pacific lingcod's rate of tooth replacement came as a surprise to researchers, says study co-author Carly Cohen, a PhD student at the University of Washington, studying the biomechanics of feeding. Cohen says, the existing research we have on tooth replacement comes from oddballs, such as anglerfish that grow teeth on their foreheads, or the piranha, which can lose a quarter of its teeth at a time. But most fish have teeth like lingcod, and so it could very well be that most fishes are losing mass amounts of their teeth daily and replacing them quickly like this species. Hmm. The Pacific lingcod is an ornery sport fish about four feet long (laughs) at adulthood, an ambush predator that frequently indulges in cannibalism.
2: It's oh. found
1: on the North American West Coast from Alaska to Baja, California, Mexico, and it's hmm. economically important to fishers in part because it's great in a taco.
0: Oh, <laughs> yeah. that's a wide range, <laughs> all the way from Alaska down to Mexico. That, I mean, that's a lot of different water temperatures it's got to survive in.
1: Yeah, these things seem to be everywhere. They're super long, and they have 500 teeth, so... <laughs> <laughs> Emily Carr, an undergraduate student at the University of South Florida and the study's lead author says, I always joke that Ling and I never got along. We had to add tape to the corners of the tanks because when they saw someone walking by, they would try to jump out. Uh, uh, I never got bit, but I'm sure they would have tried given the chance. Yikes! Yeah, a voracious hunter, the lingcod eats anything it can shove in its mouth, and there's a lot going in its mouth. They have a set of upper and lower jaws, just like ours, but they're mobile in that they can be thrown forward and spread out. If you look inside the mouth on their palate, it's also covered in teeth. Then, all the way at the back of the throat, right before the esophagus, there are pharyngeal jaws, tooth-studded, bony platforms made out of modified gill arches.
2: Wow! (laughs) This is like a Geiger fish. Yeah.
1: (laughs) And when the lingcod attacks, its first set of jaws shoot forward and drags prey into the mouth, where the inner pharyngeal jaws get to work crushing and shredding.
2: For this... oh, oh, no, no. This is absolutely... That's the alien feature, yeah. right?
1: <laughs> yeah, this uh, is a pretty gnarly fish. I'm surprised I've never heard of it up to this point because,
2: I mean... It... Well, maybe the fishery <laughs> industry is doing its best to protect us from such delectable horrors yeah, of the Yeah, that's deep. true. <laughs> so, in the
1: study, researchers used a sequence of dyes to create a visual timeline of tooth growth. First, 20 juvenile lingcod were immersed in tanks spiked with the fluorescent dye alizarin red for 12 hours. Since alizarin red is attracted to the calcium in teeth, the result was hundreds of glowing red gnashers. Over the next (laughs) 10 days, batches of the lingcod were exposed to a second green dye, calcine fluorescein, I believe. Teeth in place on day one of the study were stained red, while teeth that erupted later appeared green. Carr painstakingly counted and classified each Christmas-colored tooth for a grand total of 10,580 teeth in the 20 fish examined.
2: That's too many. That's too many teeth. <laughs> yeah,
1: it's way too many teeth. <laughs> After examining the smiles of each of the 20 fish, Carr and her team learned that lingcod teeth are faded, meaning that each tooth erupts exactly where it's destined to spend the rest of its career. <gasps> That's contrary to other famously toothy fish like the great white shark, whose teeth start out tiny at the back of the jaw and move forward as they grow. Hmm. The researchers also identified hotspots for tooth replacement. Cohen explains, It's not really that the really big teeth stay there longer or really small teeth are constantly replaced. We find that there's faster replacement in those areas where we expect there to be greater force when the lingcod chomps down. But what triggers the actual tooth replacement in lingcod? A second experimental condition in the study compared fish that were regularly fed with another group of fish that were given nothing to eat. The researchers found no significant difference in the rate of tooth replacement between them. That suggests the lingcod doesn't sprout teeth in response to breakage. It may be like our own baby and adult teeth, which fall out and erupt based on a genetic timer. Hmm. Carr Mm -hmm. says she found the lingcod's rate of replacement surprising. There's this idea that teeth are very expensive to make and replace, but our study challenges this concept. In the calcium-rich waters of the ocean, it's clearly a worthwhile investment for the lingcod to churn through teeth to keep them sharp. Willie Bemis is a professor of ecology and evolutionary biology at Cornell University who researches the anatomy of fish, including the development of teeth. Historically, the rate of tooth growth and loss in fish has been hard to estimate. Bemis says, for example, for sharks, the best data comes from studies that collected and counted lost teeth found on the bottom of holding tanks. And since sharks have been observed snacking on their own fallen teeth, perhaps to recoup Uh. their calcium investment, that data has always been a little suspect. Mm. Yeah, learning a ton of stuff about
2: teeth in the ocean that
1: (laughs) you were not ready for.
2: You know, it sounds like this is a rich area for research, but I know scientific funding, especially in like biosciences, tend to get really underfunded. I urge this team, if anyone's listening make some Christmas ornaments of these fish. (laughs) I mean, there are so many weirdos who want to dress up their tree with a Geiger fish already in the red and green assortment. Like, just going to throw that out there. Well, and if they're
0: making tacos out of these guys, they got to be catching a lot of them. So (gasps) they have to have these teeth somewhere.
2: Oh, my gosh. Could you imagine a Christmas ornament taco shop here in Austin to serve this (laughs) initiative? (laughs) Because I think I just thought of it.
1: My question is, is still, after reading this article, like, do the lingcod just eat their own teeth? Because it sounds like they get all crushed up in there when they're eating fish.
0: Yeah, I mean, they're probably just swallowing a few with every meal, it sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. pretty metal. And I bet yeah.
2: it offers a lot of nutrient and food source for our below the ocean floor friends. Remember them and how much biodiversity <laughs> happens there? Oh yeah. I don't that's know, true. man.
0: I feel like these guys are are not going for biodiversity. They're going for supremacy <laughs> under the water.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that's accurate. Yeah. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link.
0: link. All right. This next one from Live Science is a little bit of a mind blower. So we're all probably at least a little familiar with Einstein's theory of relativity, right? And the thought Mm -hmm. experiment Mm -hmm. about what would happen if humans were able to travel at or at least close to the speed of light. It's like the movie Interstellar, right? You'd come back just a little bit older and everyone on Earth would have aged dozens of years or even hundreds of years. Mm -hmm. So the question this article asks is, what if the speed of light were actually much slower than it is? Or, looked at another way, what if we were all traveling at close to the speed of light all the time? And the answer, not surprisingly, is that the universe as we perceive it would operate very differently, and things would be, frankly, pretty trippy. (laughs) To start with, colors would be all over the place, because different colors of light are actually different wavelengths, and what we see as red light is more stretched out than what we see as blue light. And what this means is that if you were just walking around the room at something close to the speed of light, you would be affecting in a noticeable way how fast those light waves reach you. And so you would start to perceive a Doppler effect when you were moving toward or away from an object. So if, for example, there were a yellow chair on the other side of the room and you started moving toward it, the chair would start to look blue because you're compressing those light waves between you. And if you started backing (laughs) away from it, it would start to look more red. And the color shift of everything would be constantly changing depending on how fast you were moving and in what
2: direction. In other words, tracers. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Right off the bat, we've got a world that's just swirling rainbow colors all the time. Wow. But you got me in the first half. Let's go. That's just the beginning. Because (laughs) another thing that happens near the speed of light is spatial dilation. Just like time passes differently for things traveling at different speeds, the actual size and shape of those things appear different to each other as they pass at different speeds. And it gets even more tricky because of something called the runtime effect, which has to do with the fact that you're not a stationary observer. Your eyeballs are also traveling at something near the speed of light. So a Swiss physicist named Gerd Kordemeyer described it like this. We know that looking at light from distant stars is like looking into the past, right? Because the light takes so many millions of light years to reach us. But slowing down the speed of light makes that effect happen on a much smaller scale to the point that if a bicycle were traveling toward you, what you saw sitting on the back of the bicycle would be noticeably in the past compared to what you saw sitting at the front of the bicycle. So if the bicycle (laughs) crashed, You would see the front of it crash significantly earlier than when you saw the back of it crash. And part of that visual experience would be that the bicycle would appear extremely stretched out as it was riding toward you. So panoramic pictures of pets. Right. Exactly. All the time. But the opposite is also true. Like if the bike is sitting still pointed toward you and you start moving closer to the bike, in your eyes, the bike starts to warp and get stretched out and then shrink back to its normal shape as you stop walking again. (laughs) And this would be true of everything around you. It'd be constantly warping and stretching depending on how you moved. And if you're having trouble visualizing all of this, you're in luck because a group of scientists at the MIT Game Lab have developed (gasps) an open world video game that can demonstrate all these changes in real time as you walk around. And it's got a cute little story wrapped around it about how you're the ghost of a child who has died and you're trying to go toward the light, essentially. (sighs) But you're young and clumsy and can't go fast enough. So you have to go around collecting these little spiritual orbs. And for every orb you pick up, the speed of light slows down by 1%. So you can actually see the difference as the game progresses where things go from normal to just complete acid trip.
2: Oh, my God. I have chills. This is like, does it come in VR? Because I feel like this is the next evolution of Katamari Damashi for adults.
0: I didn't check if it was available in VR, but I did download it and I played it (gasps) because it's called A Slower Speed of Light. It's free to download from MIT's website. You can just watch a YouTube video of someone else playing and pretty much get the gist of it. But I do highly recommend downloading and playing the real game because you see a lot of cool stuff that isn't in the video. Like, for example, (sighs) past a certain speed, once you've gotten enough orbs, if you move backwards, things just start to go black and you can't see anymore because the light particles can't keep up with you. You're moving away from (gasps) them too fast. So, I just, it was a lot of fun. Uh, honestly, it made me a little nauseous by the end because it's like, it's really hard to move when everything is warping and changing colors around. That may you. be
2: why they don't have it in VR because right. even on a good day, VR can make you feel a little pukey. Yeah,
0: exactly. This would absolutely make me vomit in VR, but I highly recommend it. And it's really pretty amazing to just imagine trying to live like that. Like, it, it's one of those things that really convinces you, like, oh, yeah, faster than light travel, we're not going to get there because stuff gets so messed up at that speed it's never going to happen. We we couldn't we couldn't <laughs> uh, handle
2: it even if we did invent it. Not in our current form, but you might be, be surprised sure. to learn how many science fiction and scientists themselves have been proponents of human modification specifically for space travel
0: okay so as long as we evolve to adapt to it then it'll be okay you know i would say check in with your local biohackers um you know (laughs) get involved get some radioactive fish teeth see what just see what can be done you know you don't know
2: (laughs) next link
1: next link link.
2: well thank you for that segue jennifer i have nothing to add other than this smithsonian magazine article about a culinary detective trying to recover the formula for a sauce made from decaying fish that delighted ancient rome Mm -hmm. yeah get ready and as a vietnamese person you know i read this with a lot of suspicion and then pride Mm -hmm. (laughs) so Garum has long been considered the dodo of gastronomic history. It was a fishy sauce that was beloved by the ancient Greeks and Romans, but until recently, classicists believed it to be extinct. And it doesn't really sound like something that might tempt 21st century taste buds as Jennifer's initial Mm -hmm. uh, reaction may have illustrated. See, here's the Um, thing though. It's because they said (laughs) decaying.
0: If they'd said fermenting, I probably would have been okay. We have covered fermented dish,
1: you know, that old, old recipe.
2: I am endlessly fascinated with how we use language as spell work to guide the mind away from the slaughter that Mm -hmm. is eating animal meat. You know, decaying. Right. (laughs) No, fermented. (laughs) But believe me, we're going to go into great detail. So if you're about to eat lunch, you may want to skip over this one. So most old recipes that have survived from antiquity usually call for allowing fish to putrefy in open vats under the Mediterranean sun for up to three months. Oh. So the term garam also refers to both a sauce made in the cooking process, which is also sometimes called liquamen, as well as a condiment, made with the blood and viscera of fish that writers like Petronius, mm. Asonius, and Seneca knew as Garum sociorum or Gallum of the Allies. But in either case, the past inhabited by Roman gourmands, known to eat sow udders, ostrich brains, and roasted door mice rolled in honey, was an unimaginably foreign country. <laughs> like, when we think of <laughs> ancient Rome, we're like a pizza, right? Like, what do we love? But, oh no. <laughs> While archaeologists have excavated 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 concrete vats that were used for making garum from Tunisia to France, finding intact organic remains has been super challenging, I'm sure you can imagine. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But they did have a breakthrough in 2009 when Italian researchers discovered six sealed dolia, which are large clay storage vessels, in a building that modern scholars have dubbed the garum shop at Pompeii. (laughs) The eruption of Mount Vesuvius in AD 79 buried the building under several feet of ash, which perfectly preserved a small factory just as it was salting down a late summer catch of locally fished picarel to make <laughs> liquamen. Food technicians from the universities of Cadiz and Seville have analyzed the charred powdered remains from Pompeii. And using that formulation, the researchers produced what they claim is the first scientific recreation of the 2,000-year-old fish sauce you hmm. can actually buy it. It's called Flor de Garum, and it's sold in these gorgeous like amphora-shaped glass bottles, and they're selling it now in Spain. Hmm. At the laboratory at the University of Cadiz, Victor Palacios, a chemical engineer, showed the author of this article a petri dish filled with gritty grayish brown powder, which was a sample of that charred paste of fish bones recovered at the Garum shop at Pompeii. Most ancient recipes call for whole, small, fatty fish to be layered between herbs and salt and concrete fats. And so their team kind of followed the same thing, just using large glass fermenting vessels. Mm. They bought the anchovies fresh from fishing boats at a local pier. They used three parts fish for one part salt. The ratio here is super important (laughs) because here's why. When small fish start to decay, the bacterial flora in their guts burst through cell walls, initiating the process of autolysis. The fish essentially digest themselves, Mm -hmm. liquefying the proteins in muscle tissue. And the presence of salt slows this fermentation process, which promotes lactic acid bacteria that defeat pathogens and foul-smelling toxins like cadaverine, wonder how it got that name, (laughs) and putrescine. (laughs) So you also want to be careful about the ratio because too much salt will stop autolysis altogether, but too little invites botulism. Mm -hmm. It's a delicate balance. Anyway, Palacio's team found that the result, after 25 days, was a paste of dissolved fish bones and flesh topped by a salty, amber-hued liquid, which smelled like seaweed and spices. Mm -hmm. Kind of a letdown, Mm -hmm. huh? (laughs) By their own admission, here's the money quote. The first time we made it, it came out perfectly. Of Ooh, course. Big words. Oh. <laughs> Top chefs in Madrid and Barcelona soon joined Cadiz's Michelin-starred Maro Bayero in endorsing Flor de Garum as a sauce with deep roots in Spanish and Roman history very salty, very concentrated, but the aromatic herbs make it distinct from other fish sauces because when Japanese clients try argarum, they call it the umami of the Mediterranean.
0: Well, and the salt is what makes it much less scary to me because that amount of salt is going to prevent any kind of pathogenic decay. Like that's, that's how you Absolutely. preserve everything is with a bunch of salt. So I'm not going <laughs> to say I'm entirely on board with decaying fish <laughs> in the sun for three months, but... If it's in a closed container (laughs) and there's a lot of salt, eh, it's just fermented fish paste. (laughs) I I can get over it. Yeah.
2: And, you know, some food historians say it's impossible to recreate a definitive modern version of an ancient Roman fish sauce. I mean, even the process we described, as you mentioned, had some notable differences. Mm -hmm. Right. But (laughs) she does... Offer an accessible option for those eager to get an idea of what it could taste like. And she singles out Red Boat, which is a brand of Vietnamese nook mam Mm -hmm. made with black anchovies and salt, no sweeteners. And she calls that the closest thing on the market to Liquiman. Highly recommend. Yeah, I like the shout out to
0: Red Boat fish sauce. That's the kind we use when we cook at home. We have a big old bottle of Red
2: Boat in the refrigerator right now. That's it. And, you know, the trick my mom has always used because we always had that same giant bottle. She would always cover the top with one of those plastic bags that you get when you're bagging fruit Mm -hmm. because if you have ever worked with Red Boat, you know not to let it touch a single cell of your skin (laughs) or your clothing because good luck getting that out. It will absolutely. (laughs) Next link. Next Next link. link.
1: Well, we'll stay firmly in the animal world, though this is more about their life than their tasty, tasty death. Uh, This (laughs) article comes to us from Gizmodo.com. It's titled, Two California Condors Had Virgin Birds. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So in a truly double-take inducing finding, geneticists recently surveyed a population of critically endangered California condors and found that two of the birds reproduced without actually mating. This phenomenon called parthenogenesis, which is a nice callback to Athena springing from Zeus's head, mm. happens occasionally in reptiles and fishes, but rarely in birds. Wow! The scientists stumbled across the discovery when going back to the genetic records of the condors from the mid-2000s. It's a remarkably improbable occurrence, said Oliver Ryder, a geneticist at the Wildlife Alliance at the San Diego Zoo and co-lead author of the paper in a phone call with Gizmodo. In their lifetimes, they weren't even recognized to be parthenotes. We're definitely keeping our eyes out any time we get a batch of blood samples for testing. Condors are the largest birds in North America, with a nearly 10-foot wingspan and weighing in at over 20 pounds in some cases. With an attractive ruff of black pointing feathers around their neck, they often look like they're going to a fancy Halloween party. (laughs) This discovery, a total goosebump moment, according to Ryder, Occurred when the team was taking stock of the historic bird population to maintain the genetic health of the condors, because when small populations of animals are being bred, there's a risk of inbreeding or genetic bottlenecks which can make the animals less robust. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The team found that one male chick in the population and then another did not share genetic information with the male condors presumed to be their fathers. The researchers then checked 487 other male birds for possible parentage, but none of them had bequeathed their genetics to the two chicks. Not even close, Ryder said. Both chicks were also homozygous for their mother's genetics at 21 marking points along their genetic code, and the team found that none of the other male birds qualified to be fathers of either chick based on differences in their DNA. Therefore, the team determined the young birds were solely the makings of their mothers. Though the mothers themselves were not virgins, they had had 11 and 23 chicks respectively before these two special cases. You know, if that matters to you, I guess. Right. right, Um, right. (laughs) (laughs) Previously, there have been documented cases in finches, pigeons, turkeys, and chickens, but never condors. And the finding has heightened significance given the condors endangered status.
2: Yeah. I mean, this feels like divine intervention. Did they name her Madonna? (laughs) Yeah.
1: We'll get to that. Uh, So in (laughs) 1982, there were only 22 birds alive. Established breeding programs have since boosted that number to over 500, but (laughs) the animals remain at the brink of extinction. Mm -hmm. The two chicks would be capable of reproduction, at least in theory. Unfortunately, they are both dead. (gasps) What? (laughs) Yeah. Studbook number 260 died at the Condor Sanctuary at Big Sur in 2003, and Studbook number 517 died at the Oregon Zoo in 2017. So it's not like they, you know, died immediately. They had some lives for a while, so that's nice. They're just not around anymore, unfortunately. But anyways, (laughs) so turkey parthenotes can reproduce, so the same likely applies for their carrion-loving cousins. That said, it's not like parthenogenesis can save a species from extinction. It's an extremely rare phenomenon, and the rhyme or reason for its occurrence in the condors remains an enigma. Ryder said, we only now have the genetic tools to look at this in detail. Previously, parthenogenesis was really identified by seeing females who weren't housed with males have offspring. But now we know the condor can have offspring while being housed with males, and it begs the question, is this going on more than we know? Mm. So while the research team will keep plugging away at conservation, Ryder said they've likely deduced all they can from these two unexpected cases. But they'll keep an eye out for more of these virgin births in the future.
0: I mean... It's fascinating to me that because my understanding of parthenogenesis was that you're basically creating a clone of yourself, but that can't be the case if it's a male bird being born to a female bird. But then I also know like bird genetics are weird. Like they don't have X and Y chromosomes. They have a whole separate system which I huh. think is like Zs and Ws. I don't remember. You can't ask me any more information because that's all I have. But, <laughs> like, but, but it still seems very strange to me that clearly this bird had some level of genetic difference from its mother. Where did yeah. those genes come from? And, right. you know, maybe it was all How mutations. How were they stored? Yeah. Maybe it just, yeah. maybe that's why it died. Because it was a genetic freak, but
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah, potentially it was published in the journal of heredity. If anyone would like to look it up, I imagine there might be some information there. Oh, they've actually got the full article just publicly available. So if you are a genetically minded person and you're curious, you can go check that out
0: and tell us if if there's any chance of it happening in humans
1: Yeah, uh, (laughs) because
0: that changes a lot.
1: Yeah, that's, that's a complication for sure. <laughs> next link.
0: <laughs> next next link. link. All right. This next one is from the Washington Post, and it's called, I found my stolen Honda Civic using a Bluetooth tracker. And yeah, it's one of those articles that makes you kind of go, oh, the future is here. Like people put trackers <laughs> on cars in movies, and I know the police have the ability to use them if they get a warrant. But I always had it sort of categorized in my mind as like a super expensive, specialized technology that real people would never use. Mm -hmm. But apparently that is not the case anymore. There are now numerous brands of trackers that are about an inch wide and cost about $30. And people are putting them in their cars, their laptops, their musical instruments, and basically anything that they think is expensive enough to get stolen, but not so expensive that the police are going to be much help in getting it back. And there's a ton of personal anecdotes quoted in the article, but as just one example, Dan Guido, a technology CEO in Brooklyn, hid one of the Apple-branded AirTags inside the hollow stem of his electric scooter after his previous scooters and bikes had been stolen three times over a period of six months. And each time, he says, the police, quote, kind of just shrugged and said he should move on. So the next (sighs) time it was stolen with the AirTag inside, his phone told him exactly where it was, and just a couple hours later, he had it back. Wow. Wow. The interesting thing is these tags are not GPS trackers. Like the title of the article says, they use Bluetooth. And the way they tell the system where they are is by communicating with whatever networked phones happen to be nearby. So if you have an iPhone, your phone is being used by the AirTag service and could potentially snitch on some random stolen item that you just happen to drive by in your car. It is one of the many options you can turn off if you dig deep enough into the settings, but it's on by default. And most people don't even know what it is or why it's there.
2: Didn't even know it was toggleable.
0: Yeah. So you I mean, you're a walking network, which a stolen item could use to alert the Apple network in general that there is a stolen item and where it is. It's worth noting that Apple themselves and most of the other manufacturers say these trackers are absolutely not for locating stolen items. As far as Apple is concerned, (laughs) their product is for lost keys, and that's pretty much it. It's a little bit like Q-tips saying you should never put Q-tips in your ears when everyone knows that's exactly (laughs) what they're for. Because the fact is, no one is using these things to find their keys. They're using them to track the things that people actually want to track. Which also includes, aside from stolen items, people are putting them on pet collars, and also in their children's backpacks. Mm. Yeah, (laughs) not surprisingly, police departments have some thoughts on these devices. (laughs) Some appreciate the help. Others are less keen. But all of the officers quoted in the article agree that owners should never confront someone that they believe is in possession of their stolen items. They said, for one thing, you just don't know what kind of a dangerous situation you may be walking into. But for another, mm-hmm. the person you see holding your item may not actually be the person who stole it. They may have simply purchased mm-hmm. it from the thief, not knowing it was stolen. And they don't want you walking up and, you know, enacting justice on some poor stranger. Mm-hmm. They do claim, at least, that if you call the police and say, my item was stolen and I can take you right to it, the police will be happy to step in and get your stuff back for you.
2: Okay.
0: But aside from concerns about vigilantism... The other concern that people have raised about these trackers is their potential for abuse by stalkers. You know, there's nothing that says Mm -hmm. a a person can't put their tracker on your car and now they know where you are at all times. Mm -hmm. So manufacturers have tried to answer this by putting in a beeping function where the tag will start making noise if it spends more than 24 hours away from its owner. But of course, people don't like this because it also alerts thieves that there's a tracking device in the thing they've stolen. (laughs) So now there are a bunch of people online sharing tips about how to disable or muffle the beeping. And, you know, frankly, the police have never been great about addressing stalker concerns anyway. And I think maybe it would actually be better to have physical evidence. Like if you can say, look, I found this thing on my car. Ask Apple who owns it and arrest that person. That seems more likely than if just saying, you know, please believe me that this person is following me everywhere. Because I think Mm -hmm. at the end of the day, the technology is here and it's not going away, especially when people are having such dramatic success when it comes to getting stolen Mm -hmm. items back. I mean, I got to admit, for 30 bucks, when I read this, I started thinking about all the places that I could put one of these things just to know where they are. Mm -hmm. You know, we had that article a while back about knowing where your cats are during the day. That's interesting. That's (laughs) worth $30 worth of entertainment, you know?
2: Yeah. But the sobering thing that you really hit upon was we are all networks now. And Mm -hmm. and this is going to get into some real deep philosophy of feminism, especially after all of my body horror media binging over Halloween weekend. (laughs) But Donna Haraway's The Cyborg Manifesto is essential reading if this idea of people and our components as both organic and technological Mm. networks, so... If that's your bag, Uh, Donna Haraway, The Cyborg Manifesto.
0: (laughs) If you want to be a cyborg, that's also
2: an option. If (laughs) you're into
0: it, then you want to
2: (laughs) Listen, this is really personal for me because I also graduated from Colorado College, which is where she did her undergrad work. And I wrote my Philosophy of Feminism final paper in the course on 7 of 9 after reading The Cyborg Manifesto. That's all I'm going to say. Please don't look for this paper. I'm never going to publish it. (laughs) (laughs) Next link?
1: Next Next
2: link. link. All right. Telling us what we already know. NPR is reporting that Blue Origin is building an orbiting mixed-use business park in space. Sweet. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's going to be called Orbital Reef, and Blue Origin, which, again, owned by billionaire Amazon founder Jeff Bezos, says by the end of the 2020s, it will become, quote, the premier mixed-use space station in low-Earth orbit for commerce, research, and tourism. This station will open the next chapter of human space exploration and development by facilitating the growth of a vibrant ecosystem and business model for the future. (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to read it in that voice. (laughs) (laughs) Potential customers for the station, they're thinking space agencies, high-tech groups to countries that don't have their own space programs. Okay, point taken. As well (laughs) as media and travel companies, the company says. Several companies are already working with Blue Origin on the ambitious space station plan, including Sierra Space, the maker of reusable Dream Chaser space plane that is able to land at ordinary imports. They're also partnering with Boeing, Redwire Space, Genesis Engineering Solutions, and Arizona State University. Oh. Quote now, anyone can establish an address in orbit. Orbital Reef expands access, lowers the cost, and provides everything needed to help you operate your business in space. All right, well, I'm only going up there if they give me one of those floaty chairs like in Wally. I'll do that. <laughs> <laughs> like, if I can just lean back and drink a Slurpee, <laughs> I accept my fate. <laughs> you'll have to let us know how it is the, the thing that's
1: frustrating to me about this era of history is that we're like right at the precipice of launching all this new stuff so all the news about it is just super laudatory mm-hmm. like wow these awesome space billionaires blah 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 but I'm excited for when we get to the nuance and the real problems in space. Like, you Mm -hmm. know, how the international commercial space station has been hacked by Anonymous or whatever. Like, stuff like that. That's what I'm really looking forward to. I mean, not that I'm looking forward to people getting hacked in a (laughs) zero-gravity environment where there's no natural sources of oxygen. That would be bad. But you know what I'm
0: saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There's interest in it, for sure.
1: I mean, we're nowhere near a utopian possibility with space. It's going to be mad dystopian. We have a lot to figure out before we get there.
2: Yes, but if you have have the money to establish a space in space, we are here to service your needs. Just remember, mixed use. A word every Austinite likes to hear. All right.
0: Well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include the Chile capital of the world is running out of water. Exploding head syndrome is no joke. And a stranger looked like my twin. That was just the beginning. So all that and more, plus everything we talked about today, can be found on damninteresting.com. If you enjoy our podcast and appreciate the lack of ads, you can support us at patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Waisper Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.